Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen and I are talking with Jonathan Shainin, who is head of opinion for The Guardian newspaper. We're talking about political opinion and political fact in a deeply polarised world. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me slash talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. So Helen, as usual, is in London. I'm in Cambridge. Hi, Jonathan. You're in Stevenage, right? Uh, Just outside Stevenage, yes. Uh, We're allowed to say that. That's public knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I have no secrets. There's a lot we could cover here, and we're going to talk about some big themes to do with what political opinion means in the kind of news cycles that we're living through now. But we should try and frame it through some of the the big controversies that we've all been living through. And before we come on to COVID and before we come on to what's happening in the United States at the moment, maybe we could start with Brexit. So you were at The Guardian, you've been at The Guardian through the, the Brexit years. You edited Guardian Longreads before you became head of opinion altogether. So now you cover the the shorter term opinion cycle as well. There is this difficulty in knowing how to think about all of that frenetic opinion, some of which you will have commissioned during the Brexit years that kind of fizzled out. The heightened state of political opinion and political opinion writing, particularly in 2019, the kind of almost hysteria around Brexit in very serious opinion pieces, and then, poof, it's gone. So when you look back on it now, look back on that kind of journalism, what do you feel about it? Do you feel there was something illusory about it? It's interesting. I I moved to the UK in the summer of 2014, and the first major news event that I encountered here was the Scottish independence referendum. It seems to me almost like it was a harbinger of things to come. I guess the thing about Brexit, which I guess is going to hang over a lot of the the things we're going to talk about, is the extent to which this period that you're describing made kind of politics and political commentary feel very urgent, very vivid, very immediate to readers of The Guardian, certainly, to to listeners of your podcast, right? There's a kind of sense of politics being very political again, I guess. I mean, I don't know a better way to put it than that. Did that make opinion writing different? Because, I mean, we'll come on to the question about whether it's still possible to hold the line, if it was ever possible to hold the line between news and opinion, fact and comment. But the opinion pages became this vehicle for a kind of tribal politics and certainly in The Guardian, but everywhere. I mean, the Telegraph on the other side. And the sheer volume of it as well, the relentlessness of it. So it also partly felt like it became political because it it was like this beast that had to be constantly fed with more and more 
but often it was more and more of the same. I mean, it had that kind of relentless urgency to it. And that's the thing that, I mean, it's come back maybe in relation to COVID, but has gone with Brexit. I so think, that's the thing that to me makes it still feel like there was something slightly illusory about it. Yeah, was there a sort of bubble or a, you know, a, a fantasy that this political reality or this kind of juncture was was more movable than it later turned out to be? I mean, one of the things that I think is very interesting about this period is and this maybe seem like a bit of a diversion, is a relationship between sort of technology and, and journalism. One of the things that we became aware of because of technology in The Guardian and in other newspapers was the enormous appetite among readers for news and commentary related to Brexit every news organization has a degree of sort of uh, internal analytic sophistication that didn't used to be there. Certainly when I started my career, it was not there. So we have a quite a, a lot of data about who's reading what, what they like, how long they read it for, how many people are, you know, where are they finding it? How are they getting here? All of that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, some of this data has allowed us, for instance, to understand maybe in a way that was ahead of the curve how much our readers cared about the environment and the climate emergency and, and the extent to which, you know, some of these subjects that I think maybe traditionally journalists might have seen as not big box office, you know, turn out to be very interesting to readers. I think with Brexit, and this is echoed in a, in a very different way with coronavirus, all of a sudden there was a feeling among many more people than I think ever before that what was happening every day in Westminster the dramas of daily politics, of parliamentary arithmetic, of decisive votes, people felt in a way that maybe they hadn't felt previously that, that this really had a visceral personal effect for them. And I think that's why you saw so much coverage, so much opinions, like the volume, you're right, you had to kind of continually keep feeding this appetite for the latest updates, the latest commentary, the latest developments. I'll come to Helen in a second, but just on that, it's interesting, though, that that appetite was for comment almost, I mean, maybe the metrics will say that I'm wrong, but almost more than for news, in a sense. So this really impacted on people's lives. There was a sense a lot was at stake. You talked about you know, the Westminster drama, so you might think there would be reportage, there might be sketch writing, there might be coverage of events. But the appetite was for comment, wasn't it? The thing at The Guardian that during my tenure has always been the highest trafficked element is the daily live blog. I can remember an earlier era, by which I mean five, six years ago, where you were starting to hear people say that the sort of the future of news was kind of going to be very short and very fast and very long and very thorough. In the same way, for instance, that in book publishing, there was a sense that sort of the midlist author was a kind of relic of the past. There was a sort of feeling that a certain style of kind of medium length journalism was becoming kind of antiquated in the digital age, which I don't think applies to comment necessarily. But I think there's something about the breaking news and the reader appetite for more and more information. And I think sometimes in a way, it's almost like 
people want the updates of the sort of live blog, maybe because people have become acclimated to a sense of right, a Twitter or a Facebook or an Instagram kind of, you know, you pull down the screen and there's going to be an update. And then the sort of surplus appetite, so to speak, is for commentary on that breaking news. The sort of sense of we've just had a very dramatic day in Westminster we get the live blog, which also contains, you know, Andy Sparrow, for instance, who's the main live blogger, you know, does a lot of kind of on the spot analysis that you wouldn't say is exactly opinion, but it's not exactly news either. It's very much sort of his erudite look at what's just happened. And then on top of that, you want voices of people you trust or voices of analysts who you think are going to be able to kind of contextualize or kind of I mean, you know, why do we have commentary on on sporting events or something like that, right? It's sort of meant to be adding to your sort of experience or understanding of the events before you. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the Brexit phenomenon in this respect is quite complicated because of the fact that on the one hand, there was a genuine, I think, political struggle going on, which I don't actually think was an illusion between the time of the 2017 general election and the 2019 general election about whether Brexit was in fact going to happen. I don't think that it was a given. And I think that at least some of the protagonists in terms of those within the two major principal parties didn't think that it was a given. I think you'd struggle to explain why Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg voted for the, the withdrawal bill at the third time of asking if they didn't think that there was a genuine possibility that, that Brexit wasn't going to happen. I'm not sure how well that that political struggle, though, was understood, particularly perhaps in a lot of the commentary and opinion pages that was offered, because often it was caught up in much more either recounting and rehashing daily events and sometimes even you know hourly events, particularly when there were succession of votes on various meaningful things. I don't just mean the meaningful vote in relation to withdrawal bill in um, Parliament, and partly, as Jonathan said, because I think that many people ended up on both sides wanting to find accounts of their own emotions and wanted, in some sense, their identities reaffirmed in relation to Brexit by what that they were reading. So I don't think it was an illusion, but I don't think it was necessarily particularly healthy. And in some sense, I don't think it was all particularly helpful in understanding what was actually happening and what we were all living through. Jonathan, is it, as Helen's talking there, I was thinking this may be unfair, but when you commission things, is there a categorical difference between opinion pieces that are primarily emotional rather than analytical? I mean, some of them are quite emotional in the opinion pages of The Guardian and elsewhere. Does that distinction mean anything to you or is that unfair? Well, I think, you know, you used this phrase earlier, in describing the sort of Brexit commentary or the kind of the state of national Brexit opinion as as involving a kind of tribal politics. And this is a one of those sort of descriptors that I, I sort of bristle at because I, I tend to, you know, the crude view that sort of all politics is tribal politics. I think when you are commissioning opinion, I suppose without necessarily thinking about it in a kind of prescriptive way, what you now have in a kind of contemporary newspaper opinion section are a few subgenres, maybe. One of those subgenres is 
a kind of commentary on the events of the day could be like a parliamentary sketch, although that's a very specific form. And sometimes that's of an explicitly polemical nature. And sometimes it's more analytical. But I think it would be a mistake to expect or demand of opinion that it that it be nonpartisan, right? And I guess part of the dilemma or the challenge of being an opinion editor is how you think about the right balance or the right mix of, of those elements in terms of, you know, to what extent are we feeding into a kind of libidinal energy among readers is sort of like people want to hear that this is just madness and, you know, how can this Brexit thing be going ahead? And isn't it clear that it's all a folly, right? I mean, there's a sense in which journalism is tied up in in that sense of people wanting to see their own outrage or their own disquiet given voice. Helen, have you been surprised by the extent to which that kind of partisan politics has dominated the COVID, the coronavirus coverage, and so that the opinion pages don't look that different from how they look during the some of the heightened points of the Brexit period. At least to me, they don't. And yet it seems like it ought to be a very, very different kind of event and provoke very, very different kinds of opinions. But it is profoundly polarised. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at our opinion pages in, in Britain during this COVID crisis, that they very much reflect the legacy of what we went through with Brexit and that some of the ways on both sides in which, I mean, I mean by both sides this time, those at least partially defending the government and those attacking the government have in good part, though not exclusively, got perspectives that were shaped, I think, by the the Brexit experience. I mean, I think on Jonathan's point that it's certainly, I think, naive to think that you're going to have opinion pages that are not going to reflect some kind of partisan opinion politics is, in democratic politics anyway, is partisan and it's pretty difficult to position oneself in relation to it without absorbing some of that. I think though that what the Brexit commentary showed, and to some extent I think it is in part though in a more complicated way rolled over into the COVID crisis, is that when the partisan commentary, I would say, lacks any good faith in terms of understanding where the alternative point of view comes from. And I would give as an example, which in a way was something that Jonathan just, was how he framed something a few moments ago, is is if you have, you know, like partisan commentary in The Guardian or anywhere else that presents Brexit as self-evident madness and to which no reasonable person could conceivably agree, that seems to me a, a different kind of commentary than partisan commentary that said there might have been good reasons for not simply accepting the referendum result. I occupy a funny role here because I'm an American who's running the opinion section at this British newspaper. Right, there's an American tradition of opinion journalism and there's a British tradition of opinion journalism and they are slightly different. Although I do think in a way the American influence has spread to our perception of what ideally opinion journalism might do the sense in which in that American frame, you're meant to have a kind of 
normatively objective news operation, which is accompanied by a standalone opinion section. The New York Times, I suppose, is maybe the best example or the most famous example of this. Sometimes people in American newspapers will say things like there's a sort of church and state division between the opinion section and the rest of the newspaper. I don't think anyone in Britain would express it that way. And I I do think it's funny because I think part of the conception that The Guardian has is that we are obviously Britain's liberal newspaper, but I think certainly the conception inside The Guardian is that someplace like The Telegraph, if I may be so bold, is seen to have sort of more bad faith in its in its opinion columns. But can that, you see that, that from the Telegraph's point yeah, of view, I'm exactly sure, yeah. the opposite would hold? Yeah, I think that's I mean, exactly isn't right. that Helen's point to an extent that both you know, the bad faith feeds off each other, yeah, feeds well, off itself? I, part of what's funny about this, having this conversation with you two, is that I think I, in a journalistic context, I tend to be maybe a bit cynical by comparison to some of my fellow journalists about the extent to which we shouldn't expect nonpartisanship from opinion pieces or tribal should not be a kind of pejorative way for talking about how people think about politics. Realist reasons, so to speak. Is there a role in The Guardian or The Telegraph to pick up Helen's point for a kind of opinion piece that would at least be comprehensible to the readers of the other newspaper. Because it sometimes feels like, you know, this is a cliche, but it feels like this way of talking about politics is completely talking past any possibility of comprehension from the other side. It's madness versus madness. It's hard to speak about the Guardian opinion pages as a monolith, right? And so I think you would find that while on balance the Guardian opinion pages were anti-Brexit, you had many different varieties of opinion writing, some of which were kind of expert analysis, although possibly from people who were not necessarily, you know, pro-Brexit types, right? But you you'd have someone like Anand Menon or Mujtaba Rahman people who were writing about the Brexit process, Catherine Haddon, when a lot of stuff was going on in Parliament. Some of these people, I think I wouldn't be able to say necessarily what their politics on Brexit were. And then you have people who are doing a more polemical thing, whose aim, uh, I suppose, is to kind of is to give voice to those, to those sort of feelings of displeasure. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that I think it's, it's hard to draw fine lines between what for the sake of this argument, we might call the sort of the good kind of opinion writing, which people of all stripes will read and enjoy and find edifying, and some lesser genre that is seen to be, well, this is just sort of preaching to the choir or, you know, speaking to the converted or something like that. So then if we do apply it to COVID, as you've been commissioning pieces over the last two to three months, you've had to commission at the same or possibly even a greater volume. I mean, there is on The Guardian coronavirus opinion as a separate category, and it needs to be filled not quite hourly, but many times a day, which in itself is slightly odd. And then this thing called the science, which is not really there with Brexit. I mean, maybe a bit, people invoking economics in the name of science. But with this one, the science has acquired this totemic quality. And 
you're also having to feed people's desire for opinion about the science. Does that feel different to you? So to get to that Brexit now comparison, or does it remind you of where we were? No, it feels different. And I, I mean, I'm on firmer ground talking about this because I've only been in post since about September. So when all of this Brexit activity was happening, I was editing the long read. Um, so Corona is on your watch. <laughs> yes, exactly. One thing that I set out to do in my new role was indeed actually to reduce the frequency of opinion pieces. So we are producing fewer pieces today than we were six months ago. There's a way of seeing the world as the long read editor that you can't exactly bring to the opinion desk. But I do think trying to unhook a bit from the sort of rapid fire news cycle that we were talking about earlier has been a goal. I think with coronavirus, you have a more easily recognizable form of expertise, which of course is not in and of itself nonpartisan, but I think one of the things that we've tried to do, myself and my colleagues, has been to have scientists in the pages writing pieces. And I think some of that work has been explanatory. I think, it, especially in the early days of the crisis, I feel like we had a lot of interesting pieces by epidemiologists, public health experts, people who were who were sort of just saying, look, this is how this thing works. But I think at the same time, what you find is that when there are moments of political contestation over, for instance, what should the government's policy be, the people who have standing and impact to comment on those matters, the expertise of those scientists makes a big difference. There was a moment, I think it was in March, maybe it was in February, where we had a series of pieces over two or three days. The first one was by William Hanage, who's a Harvard epidemiologist. And I felt very much at that time that the mass of British commentary on the policy of the government was quite credulous. And, you know, people were talking about herd immunity as a kind of exciting concept. There was a kind of sense that, well, you know, the science says that we can't lock down. I mean, there's an amazing quote. I, I sort of suspect it was Dominic Cummings, but you wouldn't really know. I think it was a briefed quote to some lobby journalist about how we weren't going to take up populist solutions to this crisis, such as the lockdown that Italy had imposed. And so that's a case where you have scientists coming out and saying, this looks like madness. This, you know, I think the, the headline on that William Hanage piece was, you know, when I first heard that Britain was pursuing herd immunity, I thought it was a joke. You wouldn't say that that was a nonpartisan piece in any way, but I don't think it was intended to kind of merely play on the emotion of the reader, if, if that's a significant distinction. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
So I remember that Hanage piece, and actually I wrote about it in the London Review of Books and used it as an example of the deep partisanship of this, um, even though it was very informative. But I have a feeling often that I know with opinion pieces on the science where the politics is coming from, from the first line. And, and with that one, weirdly, even though it was an extremely informative piece, I had that feeling too. And as commentary has grown around this crisis, I increasingly feel that one is never surprised by opinion pieces with some very rare exceptions. So one that I can think of recently that surprised me as it's become more and more partisan was Melanie Phillips in The Times, a writer, one would say broadly of the right, being very against the government and very much in favour of lockdown. And it stood out for me simply because it was the first one I'd read in a long time where it didn't say what I thought it was going to say. Now, on the technical science, I'm always being informed because I don't understand it and I'm always being enlightened. But that undercurrent of politics, for me, around this crisis is not less predictable than it was around Brexit. But maybe I'm reading the wrong stuff. I think that's partly on the present crisis is, is because the divisions of opinion about the not the government's policy in the past, but what the government's policy should now be and how slowly or quickly lockdown should be lifted and more normal activity restored doesn't actually cut across all the existing political divisions that we have. So that you know there are people on the on the left who do want lockdown to end more quickly and there are you know people on the right who want lockdown to continue more in its present form for longer. So I think once we get into that question, the lockdown issue that the politics don't necessarily fit with what we've just been experiencing for the last um, three years. I tend to agree with David on the science. I think, you know, the idea that you can kind of like separate out and say that the scientists are simply bringing expertise to bear without exercising any political judgment, and I'm not criticising them for exercising political judgment, doesn't seem to me to particularly um, work, not least because in the end, the fundamental thing about this crisis is is that for governments is that it is involved making choices between competing priorities and competing claims, all of which have got reasons to be taken um, seriously in which it's perfectly possible for reasonable people to disagree with each other. You've put something very well, I think, which is that we all know, I think, that there's no such thing as, quote, following the science because the science doesn't speak for itself, right? And I think if, if we accept that scientists, when they write for a public audience in a way that involves the urging of some political act or another, or it could be, you know, right, it's not necessarily urging that the government take up policy X or policy Y, right? A scientist could be saying, I think you should understand this problem through this lens or using this particular approach. If we accept that scientists cannot do that kind of writing without some political priors, I think to a degree we should take that same approach to all writing of this sort and to say, look, no one sits down to write an opinion column without having a prior idea of their own politics. One of the things that I'm very interested in and one of the things that, that makes me interested in a lot of political theory and, and things that David and I have talked about before is kind of an idea that we shouldn't approach journalism like it's a science, 
that means being pragmatic in a philosophical sense about the extent to which all of these forms of writing are shot through with prior political intuitions, whether whether those are of an explicitly partisan nature or not. I don't think that prevents us from saying, oh, I enjoyed this piece of writing by someone I disagree with because it gave me a new way of seeing something or it surprised me or it contained facts or reporting that I hadn't seen before. But I think to, to me, it's the wrong test to apply to opinion journalism to say, is this counterintuitive? Is this expressing an idea that doesn't kind of match with my presumption about what this person is going to say? And I was going to ask, because one thing that you have done with The Guardian is there is more opinion writing by people who I think might not say it on their passports, but might be classified as political theorists. There's also quite a lot of opinion writing, not just in The Guardian, by historians. Political theorists and historians are not scientists, but they have some claim to a kind of expertise. I don't think there is, when people read a political theorist, an assumption that these people are going to stand back from or above politics. And yet there is at least a possibility with that kind of writing being at one remove from feeding the beast. I mean, is that what you're trying to do there? Something that's interesting to me, and I'm very much a sort of amateur enthusiast of political theory. Um, one of the very few. One of the <laughs> very few. <laughs> um, I, I tried to prep a bit for this interview yesterday by rereading some Raymond Goyce you know, to get me back in the spirit of, of what we were going to be talking about. To go back to something I was saying before, in a kind of maybe an attempt at a sort of slightly futile sort of taxonomy of opinion writing, I think there is some opinion writing, for better or for worse, that reads certainly to the unconverted as, as polemical. I think there is another subgenre of opinion writing, which maybe sometimes is given the commendation of being called analysis or analytical, which is trying to persuade you, the reader, to adopt a new lens or a new way of looking at a problem, right? You know, a piece I'm very fond of, but was missed, I think, by a lot of people because it came out just before the 2019 election was Alan Finlayson writing about how we should stop complaining that politics is too tribal because partisanship is part of politics and it's going to be tribal. You know, you wouldn't say that's a polemic, but it's sort of basically saying to the reader, look, you're accustomed to seeing something a certain way and perhaps you might find it more interesting if you saw it a different way. And I think when you have historians, academics, political theorists writing, I think that's part of what they bring to the table for the lay reader is to be able to say, uh, look, we've, we've been studying this for a long time and you don't necessarily have to believe us because it's not as if, you know, we're not coming with a kind of scientific credential to this, but might it be more interesting to think about these things through reading David Edgerton, for instance, or reading Leah Uppi. Helen, I'm going to ask you because you, after all, have a column in The New Statesman, which presumably counts as opinion. I mean, it's I mean, it's a different genre again, because it's not in a daily newspaper. And it, you know, it fits in that magazine column slot. But when you write it, how would you categorize it? What do you call it what you do? In Jonathan's well, taxonomy, are you well, doing it's a bit it? because... <laughs> have I have I freaked you out by asking no, no. that question? <laughs> it's just a bit complicated because the last one that was actually published, I wrote about football, and uh, so. Um, and was it polemical? No, it was a bit more autobiographical than. Actually, that's not that's a bit untrue. It did have an element of polemicism in it, actually, more than perhaps I would usually put in the articles. But it was also a, a piece about personal experience. 
I think that there isn't any escape from the fact that if you write, you know, opinion pieces or a column that you are going to bring your political starting place in some way or another to what you are writing. And that is, I think, you know, particularly true in the times in which we live, because politics is simply saturated much more of daily life and our daily consciousness for many people than was the case 10 years ago, I think. That's not true for everybody, but I certainly think it's true for, for, for somebody like me, even though that you know, that my professional job was to teach politics and write about it in an academic fashion. I think, though, that in terms of my attempts to, to write about it, I try to you know hold on to some sense of distance from what is happening as well, recognising that that's an impossible ideal to hold to but if you I think get to the point where your you know political emotions are so wound up when you're writing that it um, blinds you to the actual political events that you're trying to understand then I'm not sure that you're doing either yourself or indeed the people who might be reading you any particular favours so I for myself haven't got any any real interest in in writing a piece that taps into people's emotions i might if i'm writing about football but if i'm writing about politics then i haven't now it doesn't mean that i don't recognize that what i write may well tap into people's emotions regardless of what my intentions are but i still would like to believe at least that if you don't hold some ideal of distance from what you're trying to um, write about that you are in danger of of contributing to the worst tendencies in our politics and not any hope that we might have of getting to some less destructive political space in democratic politics than the the one that we've been in now, except there's all kinds of complications to that and caveats that need to be put there. But I still think that there has to be some space for riding above the immediate partisan conflict in political writing. Jonathan, to finish, so now, the time that we're recording, there's a kind of heightened emotion around politics because of what's happening in the United States, violence, protests, the question of race shot through global politics at the moment, an incredibly challenging thing. It's a challenging thing to cover as a reporter, and it's also quite dangerous, but it's a very challenging thing to write opinion about. Does this feel different from the other ones that we've been talking about? I mean, is there still space in this for that analytical step back? And if so, what does it look like? You'll have to forgive me. I think it's worth circling back to Helen just for a second, because I think I'm realizing in an interesting way that I think this is a vaguely uncomfortable conversation for all involved, because these are sort of truths that don't get spoken, right? It's not normally my style to sort of to defend polemic as someone most of whose life has been spent sort of editing 6,000 word essays. You know, David, you wrote a very lovely piece for The Long Read three or four years ago about climate denialism, which you sort of turned into a sort of meditation on the difference between skepticism and cynicism. And I think one of the things that has become corrosive, although there's no way around it now, and, and I think it's corrosive for sort of complicated social and technological reasons, is that all forms of journalism, whether that's news journalism or opinion journalism or long-form essays in The Guardian or the LRB or The New Yorker or anywhere else, cannot be made 
bulletproof against sort of weaponized forms of skepticism or cynicism. The corrosive charge of our era is, well, of course, you would say that, right? Of course, you, Helen Thompson, will have this view because you're a, a white woman who's a professor at Cambridge. Of course, Jonathan Shane, and you'll have this view because you're the opinion editor of The Guardian, right? And I think there has to be, for all of us who are kind of doing this work, there has to be a way of balancing the idealism that Helen referred to, which is to say, we all go into this work with the belief that we have something to bring that is not just our sort of prior partisan intuitions, with the cynicism that says, well, every, you know, I don't think you want to be a cynic who says, well, look, everything is just your opinion. No one wants to be a relativist about this stuff, if that's the right word for it. But I think there's a balance to be struck between those two poles where we shouldn't contrast the sort of fallen state of opinion writing with some sort of more ideal genre of distant objective commentary, but nor should we say, well, you can't tell the difference between the two and everything is just someone's opinion. So in the age of of both Donald Trump and um, what's happening in the United States now, is it harder? The, the, the kinds of things that you've just been describing, the pieces yeah. that you're commissioning at the moment, right? Is it harder to get that one step back? A lot of our presumptions, I think, about journalism and how it works. And when I say how it works, I mean both the relationship between news writing and opinion writing and reality or the facts, but also the relationship between journalism and kind of public discourse and politics, the extent to which voters' opinions of a given government are meant to be influenced by facts that are conveyed to them by journalists, right? We have we have a settled model, a kind of classical model, so to speak, of how the facts, the news, and the demos interact with one another. And I think that settled model is now very antiquated. And I'm not sure we have a new model that adequately conveys the kind of chaos and instability in the relationship between those three elements. And so I think journalism feels more urgent to many people than it ever has before in terms of you've got it on your phone, you've got it on social media, people are talking about it all the time, people are talking about politics, people are talking about the news. And yet that urgency is accompanied by a sort of diminished authority because there is no one consensually agreed version of what just happened in the way that an earlier iteration technologically, journalists had a kind of functional monopoly on describing the world to their audience. None of us have firsthand experience of what's happening on the streets of Minneapolis, but I think once upon a time, we would have been dependent upon the New York Times or the World Service or the Guardian to tell us what's really happened. And now we can set that journalistic account alongside video from people's phones, commentary on social media, pictures on Instagram, all of that kind of stuff. You had a kind of a consensus about a stable way of representing the world, and I don't think it exists anymore. And I think it's a real challenge because I think there's constant skepticism or doubts or even cynicism about the extent to which we can produce a representation of what's happening out there in the world. And I think what you see, particularly when we look at questions 
of sort of race in America, for instance, you get into another form of, of thinking about representation, which is that who are the journalists who are telling this story? Is journalism of a sort of establishment variety properly representing the concerns of the people it's writing about? Are newsrooms representative of the United States, right, in this particular case? Yeah, I think that the what's happening in America at the moment does run into the the limits of the analytical mode. In some sense, I think that's been true about Trump since the beginning, that there's something about his presidency that where the analytical mode just seems inadequate to try to get to grips in any moral sense with what has been happening, and that is particularly true now. I think that in terms of what's been going on for over the last week, and partly the analytical mode is sort of near exhausted because there's something almost, I think, religious about what is happening and that that means that trying to just sort of use conventional political language to try to say something about it doesn't really work. But it can risk coming over a simple indifference and that's simply not what is required in the in the situation. You know, there is a, a space though still for analytical opinion pieces about what's happening in the United States at the moment that really explain to people who don't understand it, not least often in, in this country, about, say, the racial history of policing in the United States and, and why that this is such a painful issue for the for the African-American community. So it's not that I think that there is no place for historicising in simply providing people with a better way of understanding it. But I think as a, a kind of the analytical mode, like say that David and I might think that we prefer on, on talking politics, I think there are limits. And in some sense, what is happening in the US runs into them. There are challenges to writing as a journalist, writing opinion pieces about things where reasonable people do disagree. But there are also challenges writing, as in the current case, the George Floyd killing and its aftermath, about which reasonable people really shouldn't disagree. And though in the United States, even this is shot through with partisanship and American journalism around this, particularly the journalism of the right, looks very, very different. But at one remove, there isn't room for reasonable disagreement. And when there isn't, about the central issue here, and when there isn't, that poses a challenge too, doesn't it? Particularly to keep the opinion pieces coming. I think while there may be a kind of consensus of reasonable opinion, so to speak, on the case at hand. I mean, I sort of, I suppose, I mean, there's a consensus of outrage. Yeah, but I think outrage I mean, feeding off outrage. It's, it's outrage. I want to tread carefully on this because I'm not there and I've not lived in America for a long time now. But I think something that's worth mentioning, because I think it, it crosses some of the things we've been talking about today, is that what I think is worth noting about this moment in America is the extent to which what you're describing, I think, accurately as the kind of the broad consensus of outrage it's obviously not universal and it's this, you know, these things fall along very partisan and sometimes along specifically racial lines in America. But I think there has been in American public discourse broadly, and I think especially in American elite discourse or in American kind of liberal discourse, a huge change 
in how we think and talk about race and racism in America. That, that to me is maybe the most, it's not the most significant thing about what's happening in these protests, but I think it's one of the most interesting elements. And that change in how we talk about race and racism in America owes a great deal to writing, to opinion writing, to essays, to kind of a very notable shift in how American institutions, someplace like the New York Times or other places like that, engage with the history of race in America. Some of the consensus that exists now did not exist even two or three years ago, and certainly not 10 or 20 years ago. And it's not because there's more racism now than there was then, right? The extent to which a kind of discourse has come to life looking at the history of race in America, especially the way in which race has been inscribed in in various forms of state power from policing to mortgages. There's a whole history there that's been brought up by journalists and historians, and it's it has it has changed how people in America think and talk about this. There is obviously a lot more that we could say about what's going on in America, and we are going to try and discuss it in more detail with people who are actually there in a future episode. We've got an extra episode this week. It's with the comedian Matt Ford. We were due to be recording a live edition with him at the Cambridge Literary Festival, which, of course, sadly, had to be cancelled this year. He's had a pretty extreme version of lockdown. We're going to be talking to him about his show that had to be postponed, Brexit, Pursued by a Bear, and also about what life is like leaving his flat after 10 weeks. Plenty of the other events from the Cambridge Literary Festival have migrated online, and you can find them at thelisteningfestival.com or just go to the Literary Festival website. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. 
That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.